again. I'm guessing that I probably have maybe six more out of the book of James will end right around Thanksgiving time, I think. Just take us through to November sometime. Maybe early December. We'll focus on the birth of Christ. Maybe a series there. Or whatever. Whatever works. Okay, um, I wanted to tell you, I forgot to mention this, um, about three times a year, I do a Saturday morning uh, workshop on a few different subjects, and I usually do it at trail. When I retire, I'll probably, I'll probably still do some at trail, but I also do some at the Dub, the Dub Radio. They have a big room there that I'll be using in the future to do trainings, and then they host it, the Dub Radio. I do one on um, biblical boundaries in the workplace and the home, which is a very popular one. Then I do one on personality differences um, from a biblical perspective in the workplace and the home. That one packs the place out. I just did that one a few months ago. And uh, another one that I'm starting to do, and I'm going to do it on October 14th, Saturday morning, October 14th at Trail, from 9 to 11.30 in the morning, on the Five Love Languages. And many, many of you know that book, have read that book by Gary Chapman. It's an it's a, it's a excellent book on marriage relationship, any relationship, whether it's your family, Workplace, you don't have to be married to go. We have several people, single people going. And uh, Gary Chapman's theory, he's a Christian psychologist, his theory is there are five different ways that people feel loved and understood. Okay? And his theory is that we have to learn how to treat and love other people based on how they feel loved, not based on what we think love is. Okay? It's kind of like the personalities, which I do a lot of training in. We present ourselves with people in our life that have a different personality or a different bent, and we learn how to approach them based on their personality and what makes sense to them. Not necessarily what makes sense to us. And they're supposed to do the same. Okay? So he says that there's five different ways people feel understood and loved. Everybody. There's probably more than five, but he talks about five. So I just want you to grade yourself here in a minute. Okay? One way people feel loved is by what we call quality time. So that person feels most cared for and loved and has enjoyment out of one-on-one -on -one time with someone else. It could be in a coffee shop. It could be walking in the neighborhood. It could be at your home talking at the dinner table. But it's quality focused this. So some people feel most understood in love if you show them personal, focused, caring time. Okay? And usually, the way a person feels love, that's how they show love to other people. Okay? Generally speaking. The second way, the second love language, is through words of encouragement or affirmation. So those are the people in our life when we're really, really down, if that's your love language, and they put their hand on your shoulder and they say, you can do this. You're going to get through it. I believe in you. Most importantly, the Lord Jesus believes in what he can do in your life. Um, 
those people feel most love when they're encouraged, when they're down. For example, uh, I was a pastor at the Nazarene Church for five years, although I'm not Nazarene. I just preached and did the counseling. And uh, Sunday nights, every Sunday night I preached for a long time, and uh, we had a wonderful worship band. This one particular Sunday night, my heart was broken. I was really stressed. I felt really, really low. No one else knew it, and I and we were worshiping before I taught, and um, we we were praying, and as we were praying, one of the band members walked up behind me. He had no idea what I was going through, and while I was praying, he put his hands on my shoulder. And I felt the fire of the Holy Spirit shoot through me like a lightning bolt. I felt at peace. I felt loved. I felt like everything was going to be okay. Because one of my love languages is physical touch. See what I mean? I felt cared for. Okay? So, verbal encouragement... That's I know you can do this. You can get through this. The Lord's working in your life. I believe in you. Or I love that shirt you're wearing. Or you look beautiful in that dress. Anything that's affirming. You know people like that. We have people like that in our lives. I mean, you never hear them say anything negative. They're always positive. That's the second love language. The third one is physical touch. Hand on shoulder, hugs when you meet them. That's my other one. And I, I love babies all the way up to grandmas and grandpas in an affectionate, physical way. Now, unfortunately, the culture we live in is twisted. And now, I remember I was at a coffee shop and this woman walked in and she had two little twin daughters that were absolutely adorable. And I go, oh, I can share this with my wife. And I, I was going to take a picture. She said, put your phone down. The mother said that. Put your phone down. Like I was a pervert. Now, you can't hug children like this because of the twisted society we live in. Okay? But that's, that's a love language. I'll kiss babies on the forehead. I'll hug grandmas. I even hug my brothers in Christ. That's a love language. So, the way I like to be loved is if someone, you know, hugs me or shakes my hand or, you know, whatever. The fourth one, so you've got words of encouragement. You've got physical touch. You have quality time. And the way you feel love is the way you actually love out to other people. The next one is acts of service. Now those are the people in the room that are the doers. Okay? They'll not only paint their fence, but they'll paint their neighbor's fence. Those are the ones that will bring soup to someone who's sick. Those are the ones that just love giving to those in need. Okay? Consequently, it touches their heart and they feel very, very special when someone does something practical for them. Okay? Now, one of my wife's love languages is acts of service. She's a doer. She never stops. I told her two years ago before she retired, she was a very busy nurse manager. You're not going to be any less busy when you retire. You're just changing locations. Yeah. Now she's more busy than she was when she was a nurse. You're just changing locations. Why? Acts of service. Always doing, always doing. But that's not my love language. My love language is encouragement and physical touch. So I was talking the other day and I said, you know, you know what my love language is. It's verbal encouragement. You know, it's kudos. It's, it's you know, appropriate appropriate compliments. 
And she said to me, well, you know, it's very interesting because I don't need that. I don't need that. I just do my job. Matter of fact, it embarrasses me. When people compliment me, it embarrasses me. And I go, you know, I know that about you. There's only one small thing that we need to address here. We're not talking about you. We're talking about me. That's the whole point. She goes, sometimes I don't even think of that. And I go, that's the whole point. And I said, it's just like your acts of service. I mean, nothing makes her feel more loved than if I offer to, you know, put dishes in the dishwasher. Or, or, you know, sweep the floor, swift the floor, without her even asking. All of a sudden, she feels loved. And she goes, well, that's the way I show I love you. And I go, well, that's not my love language. And I appreciate it. I might tell her, I do tell her frequently, I love the way you take care of her home. I will never not love the way you take care of our home. However, it doesn't turn my crank. <laughs> you know, it doesn't put stars in my eyes. I appreciate her, but I don't feel love because I have a clean home. I don't. I feel love if she says, you know what? Actually, she said something the other day. We, we went to that concert. Did you hear about that concert the other night? Um, Casting crowns, did anybody go? Yeah, I was. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. And so we're getting ready to go. And uh, I'm a 49er fan, and, and it's football season, which she hates, but I love. So I was going to put on my 49er hat because it was a little windy and go, and she goes, Can you please not wear a hat tonight? I go, Why not? She said, Because you're so handsome and you don't need a hat. I took that hat off, threw it on the bed. <laughs> that fast. I go, well, Jenny, you, you, you've not said that for a while. She goes, because I'm practicing the love language, Bill. <laughs> you do listen to me. So uh, we got quality time, we got acts of service, we have physical touch, uh, we have gift giving and gift receiving. Did I tell you about gift giving? Okay, that's the fifth one. So that's my wife's, what was that? She likes it. She likes it. You already like that one. That's definitely Okay, okay, that's Jenny's favorite. So Jenny, you know, for people that are loved by receiving gifts, they also love to give gifts. And so if you're married to a gift giver, Christmas is a nightmare. I have to remind her every Christmas, Christmas is about the Lord Jesus and gifts for our family, not the community. And she goes, what are you talking about? I like, so you'll give gifts to girlfriends, girlfriends. That's her love language. So what turns her crank? Unexpected flowers just because. She feels that way. So the key is, I just said that, that this is a little bit of what I'm going to talk about. The key is, generally in all relationships, our love languages are opposite theirs. So I'm going to talk about those that you are closest to in your life. We have to learn how to scratch them where they itch. Love them where they want. Not the way we want, but the way they want. And you know if you've got an itch on your back that you can't reach, and you ask someone to scratch it, and they can't get the exact spot, you're frustrated and they're frustrated. We have to learn how to love people the way they need to be loved. That's what I'm going to talk about. It's very powerful. And then I'll probably talk about the three biggest differences between men and women in a relationship. There are differences, you know. That's what I was going to say. You need to tie in the um, Mars and Venus. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, I'll tie that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'll tie that. For example, men, just a little, just to whet your appetite, women, I've never met the woman who has a problem or a complaint that she shares with her husband that wants her husband to fix it. I've never met that person. What do they want instead? Listen. Listen. They don't want you to fix their problem. They want you to feel their problem. So let's just talk a little bit about that. Anyhow, what you do, if you want to go, it's October 14th. What I found out for, for you stargazers and, and 
Moon Watchers. That happens, I didn't even know this when I scheduled it, it happens to be the morning of the, the lunar eclipse at the exact time. I'm from 9 to 11.30. And so what we'll have to do for those that sacrifice for this training, the solar eclipse, is go outside during the morning and look up there for a little bit, and then we'll get back into the training again. Anyhow, if you want to go, trail.org, and you can sign up to register. October 14th. Kathleen said, you need to tell us about this. Where are you, you going to do this? Okay. All right. The theme of James is behave like we believe. Our character and our conduct must back up our confession of faith. There's nothing that fires up the non-Christian community about Christians than those who come off hypocritical. They say one thing, they live another. So people are longing for us, although Jesus said if they hate me, they'll hate you. People are longing to see Christians that actually live out what they believe. And that's the theme of James. Behaving like we believe. James chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 14. His theme tonight is proving your faith by what you do. The test of genuine faith is not your theology, but how you treat people. The test of your faith is not your theology, but how you treat people. Okay? So you can have a PhD in theology, but if you treat people horribly, your theology means nothing. Nothing at all. Jesus said if you love one another, people will see that as a testimony and will be taken back. So James tonight talks about our faith needs to be translated in our actions. Okay? Now before we begin, there's a little controversy that I want you to help me with. So turn to James chapter 2 verse 14, that's the first verse, and I'm going to show you another verse, and then I'm going to show you something that Paul wrote, and it sounds like they don't agree with each other. James and Paul. Okay? So look at chapter 2, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? What good is it if you believe, but it's not evidenced by how you treat people? Look at verse 24. Oh, chapter 2. Now look at verse 24. James says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He is saying, We are forgiven and justified by works, not grace alone. Now that's not what Paul says. So turn to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Just keep your finger here and turn to Romans chapter 3. James says we are forgiven and justified by works. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 28 For we hold that one is justified by faith, not by works. Now that sounds like a contradiction. What are these two men saying? If you have faith, you want to do works. Okay. So James is talking about the person who's already a believer. Because he says, my brothers and sisters, all through this book, 
And so James is talking to Christians. And he says, your faith is validated in evidence by the good deeds you do among God's people. Okay? Paul is talking about the people that don't know Christ yet. And he says, your good works mean nothing. It's your faith by grace through Christ that you will be justified. So Paul is talking to people before Christ, and James is talking to people after Christ. Make sense? So that's the difference, because a lot of people will say, no, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't agree with itself. Well, if they ever come to you with this, it's a very simple answer. James talking to Christians, Paul's talking to Gentile non-Christians. Okay? It's really that simple. Another thing too, Bill, is that in Romans, Paul is talking about the law of Moses. Yes. And saying that deeds according to the law of Moses do not justify you. Yes. But in James, he's talking about the royal law, the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Christ. Yeah. The word so, Christ. Yeah. So they're talking about, Paul's talking about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and yeah. And James is talking about the New Covenant. Yeah, and basically yeah. James is saying the New Covenant says love your neighbor as yourself. And so love is an action. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's right. And if you don't have the action, then you're... They will you're, question your faith. Yeah, your faith is questionable. Yeah. Yes, sir? It's almost like breath. Only God can breathe life into a person. But a person has to keep breathing in order to be alive. So the breath comes from God. But you will see that every person who is still alive Excellent. Excellent illustration. Someone else? Okay. So, uh, Paul's talking to a group before salvation. James is talking to a group after salvation. Okay? So that's his thing. Now let's look to, let's start. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him and the implication is capital N-O. No. Our faith is only evidenced by our works as believers. It's proof. Like you said, our works prove that we have faith. Our good deeds. Our grace. Our ability to forgive. Our ability to help the poor. Our ability to show grace when it's not deserved. All of that is based on the fact that we have a faith in Christ. And then he gives an illustration, as he always does. You know, this was the Lord Jesus' half-brother. James was Jesus' half-brother. He didn't believe in Jesus until Jesus rose from the dead. And then and only then did he believe. But when he finally believed, he became a giant of he became the leader of the early church. Of all of the leadership, James was the leader of the early church. And he was also martyred, as I've said many times, by being thrown off the top of a temple and being clubbed to death. And he did it for the very Lord Jesus, his half-brother, that he rejected his whole life until after the resurrection. And so he was very, very focused. He recalled some of the teachings of Jesus, no doubt, after he was born again, his eyes were open. And he recalled the teachings and the life of Jesus. And he's emphatic that our faith has to prove itself. So look at verse 15 and 16. He gives a couple of examples. He says, if a brother or sister, now he's talking specifically about Christians now. He's talking about how we take care of believers. Okay? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so very, very impoverished, rags for clothes, hardly any food, a Christian, a fellow Christian, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed. 
Can you imagine that? They have hardly any clothes. And we well, you know what? The Lord will work it out for you. He'll clothe you and you'll be warm. And then they spin in their sandals and walk away. Or they say, be filled. Like someone's going to come along and have pity on you and give you a meal. James says, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? What good is that? He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. So we're called to be very generous to believers that are in need. We're also called to be generous to people who are not believers that are in need. But it's very, very clear that the high, high priority is to those who are in need that belong to the body of Christ. There are primary responsibility. Someone in the body of Christ that's in need. And we see that in the book of Acts. When many people lost their families because of their faith in Christ. They lost their jobs. They lost their family. They lost their income. They lost their home. And so do we read, what do we read in Acts chapter 2 and 4? Everybody brought their goods together and provided for those that, did, that had needs. Everybody brought their stuff together. And provide for him. So he's talking about the family of God here. Now, there's a little caution here. James is being very practical. Jesus walked among the less fortunate. That's who he hung out with. He was accused of being a sinner. And anytime you read that word sinner, it means immorality. An immoral life. He was around prostitutes and around those that lived immoral lives. He was also accused of being a drunkard. Why? Because he was around people that had those kinds of problems. Not to judge them, but to bring him to that bring them to himself. He never did what they did. I think I, I might have told you this a while back. About that guy in my church who who had some issues with women anyway and he said the Lord told him there's a topless bar in Bedford the Lord told him that he was to go into the topless bar and share his faith with them I said the Lord did not tell you to do that that has been an issue you've had your whole Christian life. The Lord's trying to take that away from you. So don't believe for a moment God is leading you to share the gospel with naked dancers. You need a little bit of counseling, sir. So, what we want to know here, though, is that we're to take care of to prove our faith of those that are less fortunate in the body of Christ. However, we have to take in the whole counsel of Scripture when we understand who to give what. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, you can't take lift verses out of context. You have to look at the Bible as a whole and see what the other writers say about situations like this. So Paul is in 1 Thessalonians. When he went to Thessalonica, many came to Christ and his message for them was the coming of Christ. A lot of them took it out of context. Some of them said that their loved ones were already dead so they would never see Christ. Some other people said he's already come and gone. And so Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the second coming of Christ. And there was a group of people in the church that believed his coming was imminent, 
like within months. So they quit their jobs and went up and stood up on some hill waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. They had no income. They had no food. And they would go to the church and leech off of the church for food and money. And you know what Paul said about them? He said, never forget, if anyone in your church is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now there's a difference be between someone who's poor and can't work than someone who foolishly is responsible, irresponsible, and refuses to work. We're not to help that person. Because that's unbiblical. We're supposed to be stewards of what God's blessed us with, both talents and income. And to walk away from that and use the church for money and personal gain and lazily wait up on a hill with poor theology, we don't give them food. Does that make sense? Okay. So there are some people very, very qualified to receive generosity, and then there's some that are disqualified. Just to make an example that we need to know what the Bible says in these areas and other areas. It's very important. What do you think, Steve? Valid? Don't yeah. take a verse out of context. Absolutely, you know, and when you were talking about that, it kind of reminds me when you pull up to a street corner and you see somebody out there begging. Yeah. You know, if they have two arms and two legs and can walk, I don't give them any money. Yeah. But if they're in a wheelchair and it's, you know, the obvious, obvious need. Obvious need, yeah, then we help them. But yeah, it goes right along with that. Yeah, so we got to use wisdom. Absolutely. Wisdom in our grace. Really, seriously. Sometimes it's very sacrificial. Other times, not so much. But we have to use wisdom. Yeah? What if, uh, what if you try to, instead of giving them food or money, try to teach them something, a skill or something that they can well, use? Well, I think that's, well, you know what they say, you know. Yeah. You can show a man how to fish, but when you teach him how to fish himself, he'll have fish the rest of his life. That's, but that takes time to do that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's by far a very, very helpful way to help someone. By far. Yeah. So then he moves on. Let's go to verse 18. Verse 17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay. I'm not interested in what you believe or what you say. I'm interested in what you do as a Christian. Or do not do. Um, James then says, um, verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you that I'm a Christian, not by what I say, not by what I read, not even by what I believe, but what I do because of what I believe. Amen? And this is really good. Pardon me? It's the fruit, yeah. The fruit of love. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All has to do with relationships and our life and what we show others. Now, he says something very, very powerful. When, when I was a young Christian in the Bay Area, we were taught evangelism classes. I think I've told you this before. And so we, it was called Evangelism Explosion. You might remember that in the 70s. And we had a different program similar to it called Discipleship Dynamics. And so we would go to like 13-week class. I'm a baby Christian. I want to learn how to share my faith. And uh, so when people would come to our fellowship, and it's not a bad idea for Butte Creek, they'd come to our fellowship, we'd send them a letter, they'd fill out a card, thank you for coming and tell them we have a gift we'd like to drop off and be a Bible. If, if you so desire, you know, give us a call or sign this card, say, sure, I'd like a visit. You go by. There's three of us, um, usually a man and, uh, or two women, and you know, mixed sexes, of course. And they've invited us, so we go by, we give them a Bible, if they invite us in, we share the gospel in a very, very nice way. 
And so we had five points. Grace, man is a sinner. God is merciful and just, therefore he must punish sin. Or four points. And then saving faith leads to eternal life. So we would go in and share. It was very natural. Very, very fun. But one of our examples that we used when we would ask a question like, what would you do if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, most people would say, well, I've been a very good person, and we know that holds no water. And other people would say, well, because I believe in God. And as we pursue that, we find out that it's just almost like the national average belief that American has that doesn't translate into a transformed life. Like they believe in God, like I believe Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. It's a historical belief. It doesn't mean anything. Okay. So we would talk to him about that, and we would cite this next verse. And we would say, well, saving faith is a lot more meaningful and deep than head knowledge. And then we, we quoted this verse. Look at verse 18. Um, verse 19, excuse me. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it's not enough even for people to say I'm a Christian because I believe. Well, what do you believe in? I believe that Jesus walked the good earth, this earth and he was a nice prophet. That's not good enough. Have you submitted your entire life into his hands? Are you willing to get into his wheelbarrow? We've used that illustration over and over again. Are you selling out? Are you picking up your cross and following him? That's what true belief is. But just knowing him, knowing about him, the devils know all that, and they shudder. So James is cutting through this jargon about, well, I believe in Jesus. He's cutting right through it. Like, what does that mean? So he goes, even the devils believe in shudder. Is this guy pointed or what? He doesn't mince any words. He continues on. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's calling the people, his brothers and sisters, foolish. Do I got to prove to you, you foolish people, that are out there scattered, discontented, going through suffering and pain, because he's writing to a bunch of scattered believers all over the world at that time, who are becoming embittered and confused about the gospel. And so he's trying to set them straight and get them back on track of what faith in his elder brother really looks like. And he calls them fools. Do you want to be shown, you fullest person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he gives us two illustrations about what faith looks like in a Jewish patriarch and in a Gentile prostitute. Let's look at these stories and we're going to see what he's trying to say about what faith looks like. So turn to Genesis chapter 22. He mentions Abraham. Turn to Genesis 22. became the Jewish patriarch and God called him to live a life of faith when faith didn't even make any sense. In chapter 12, you don't have to look there, God approached Abraham. He was from Mesopotamia. He was not a person of faith initially. And he told him I want you to leave your family and the territory in which you were raised and I want you 
to go into a new land. I want you to leave the, fam the, the, the area of Ur, which is where you live, and I want you to go into a new land. I'm going to do a special work in your life. I want you to leave and go. That's chapter 12. And what does he do? He packs up all of his belongings. He's never heard from the Lord before. He packs up all of his belongings and all of his family members. And he leaves the roots he was raised in with all of his relatives. And Hebrews actually said, so Abraham went going not knowing. Has the Lord ever told you to do something and you didn't know what the outcome would be? But you were clear that you had to do it. Going not knowing is a life of faith for a Christian. For example, and I'm only using myself because it's the clearest thing I know, but I'm, I'm certainly not the hero of my own stories. I've told you that before. When I was done with my senior pastorate in Eureka, California, it was very clear, I was really burned out. The ministry had become my mistress. I could have lost my family over it. And we were in Eureka, California, and thankfully we had uh, two acres with just a little old mobile home in this place called Grants Pass, California, uh, Oregon. Have you ever heard of that, Grants Pass? <laughs> so we had a little mobile home there in Grants Pass, Oregon, and, and God put it on my heart. You're done here. I was there almost 10 years. I foolishly told the congregation I would never leave. Never tell people as a Christian, you'll never not do anything. Because that's probably exactly what the Lord's going to ask you to do. And so I had to leave. And I had to do this. I knew that we had a mobile home on acreage, just two acres and kind of in the woods. I knew that much. But I had no job to go to. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew where to go, but I went no, not knowing what I was going to do. I had been a pastor, a senior pastor, for 10 years. And now we're striking off. I felt like a pilgrim. Striking off, and we go to Grants Pass. And I end up teaching my two children, Michael and Christina, they were six and eight years old, a third grade class at a Christian school. It was the first time my kids have ever called me, and they were in my classes. Two of the best years of my life, being my kids' third grade teacher. And one of the things I love most about it, it was the only time in their life they called me Mr. Gallagher, and I love that. Never said it since. Never said it since. But I didn't know what I was going to do. We were enrolling our kids in the school that day. We were talking to the principal, very excited about the enrolling them in a Christian school. And, you know, she said, well, what have you done? I said, well, I've been a pastor for 10 years, and I, I left the ministry and burned out. And she said, you know what? We got a third grade job to offer you. And I went, <laughs> So I had a church of hundreds of people, and I was more frightened of 21 third graders in the church. Ended up doing it to the best years of my life. That's going not knowing. And so that's exactly what Abraham would do, had to do. The first steps of his faith when he cut his spiritual teeth, he had to go somewhere not knowing where he was going because the Lord told him to. That's faith. Then we see in Genesis 13, we read that he, his nephew was Lot. And Lot and Abraham... Uncle and nephew, God placed them on this high 
ravine or this top of the mountaintop, it's still there. When we went to Israel, we rode a couple of donkeys up the hill and stood there and watched what Abraham and Lot was looking at. After I almost fell off the donkey. And one part of the area they were looking at was lush and green, and the other part was desert and still is. And Lot, as a young man, wanted the green pastures, and Abraham submitted himself. He could have pulled rank, but he felt the Lord was calling him to go over there. So, another evidence that what God wanted was real to him. And does anybody know the land, that green plush land, where Lot landed was Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. So he picked the best. Abraham submitted to God's will and took the lesser of the options, which eventually would lead to Canaan land, the promised land. And this little self-centered young man ended up at Sodom and Gomorrah, which Abraham had to go get him out of. Second evidence that his faith was real. He did what God wanted. Now, Genesis 22. This is the story of all stories. All of you know it. James is saying, by faith, Abraham did this. Now, as I read through this, this is a study for you. So we're talking about faith that's evidence in works. Something you do to prove your faith is real. So as we read through the story, I want you to pick out how Abraham's faith was seen specifically in what he did. And there's three or four places in here that express his faith. I want you to find it. Number one, or verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. Hello. Do you know that God will test your faith sometimes? And he will lead you to do something that will stretch you to no end and frighten you. To no end. Especially if it has to do with letting a family member go. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which is Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is a big base rock about the width of this room that is in the Temple Mount of Jerusalem today. We can't access it now because Muslims hold ownership to it. But when I went to Israel over 40 years ago, we accessed it. I went in there and there was the flat mount that they believe was Moriah where Abraham took his son, because Jerusalem's on a hill, okay? Go to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God had told him. You following me? You looking for faith here? 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Can you believe that? He made Isaac carry the wood that he was to sacrifice his son on when it was ablaze. And of course, Isaac has no idea what's going on. He's a younger man, he can carry the wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. I mean, can you feel the emotion? Father, where is the sacrifice? He said, my father, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire in the wood. But where's the lamb for the offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine? This is what the Lord told him to do. Why? Why did the Lord tell him to do this? First verse in the chapter. He was testing his faith. And there's a lot richer stuff there that we're going to see in a moment. But the first verses, first words of this chapter is, so Abraham had his faith tested. He tests our faith through our obedience and our actions. It's a test to strengthen us, to help us trust him when everything in us is screaming against what he's asking. Especially when it has to do with family. Let's continue. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place in which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on it in order to bound Isaac and his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. We talk about relief. And he said, Here am I. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, or a lamb, caught in the thicket by its horns. I'm telling you, when the Lord presses us to live out our faith with action in a very complicated and difficult situation, it's like instantly we understand why. Almost instantly we see his hand at work. I'm not kidding. Um, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will always provide. When he's asking us to do something that feels unreasonable, when he's asking us to forgive, when he's asking us to show grace, when he's asking us to move, when he's asking us to quit, when he's asking us to retire, when he's asking us to get married, when he's asking us to have a child or asking us to 
give wealth to someone in need. When he's asking us to say no to somebody because they're taking advantage of you. And it's so difficult. The Lord will always provide. This little sidebar here is an example. I talk to a lot of young men who are husbands and fathers. 30s, 40s. And of course their work is everything. Their work is everything. They love their family, they love their wife, but their work is front and center. Because they have to climb the ladder. They have to climb the ladder. So their work is front and center. Unfortunately, when the work becomes front and center, your wife and your children are in the bottom ladder row. Not supposed to be that way. So I've told young men, many young men, because I learned the hard way. I almost lost my family over making the church the mistress. I told them, I tell the young men, you, you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to live your love for what you do. But you do have to reprioritize it. And priorities, as I see them in the scripture, are very clear. Black and white, there's no gray. God, Amen. spouse, Amen. children, Amen. job. Amen. Well, I can't do that. I'm the provider. I go, no, you're not. God is the ultimate provider. He's helping you use the gifts he gave you. Don't give me that provider stuff. You'd provide for yourself if you didn't have a wife. A lot of guys go, I'm the one that brings home your baby. <laughs> yeah, while you neglect your family? Now I know there's seasons. I look at John over there. I know there's seasons like with truck drivers and people. There's seasons. There's busy seasons in our life. But a busy lifestyle must be prioritized according to Scripture. And so this is what I tell the young men. I promise you. I promise you, based on God's Word, that if you will put Him first, and the needs of your wife and children second and your job below that, I promise you, he will financially provide for you and your family. That's the way it works, not the other way around. That's exactly what James is saying. But sometimes the Lord's going to ask us to step out and do something very, very uncomfortable. And we know it's him. There's no way around it. I was dating a gal one time for a year and a half. She had a ring on her finger. I was just tormented because I, I didn't have peace. Sometimes I felt okay. Sometimes I didn't. I went to five different pastors in our large church in the Bay Area asking them for counseling. They all told me the same thing. You need to fast and pray. And finally my senior pastor said, Bill, he sent me down. Bill, you've wrestled over the idea of marriage with this lady for a year and a half now. You've talked to every pastor on the staff. They've all pretty much told you the same thing. Not leave or anything, but, you know, trust the Lord. He will show you in time. And he sat down with me. And I was a relatively young believer. I was in Bible college. but He said, Bill, he's like a father to me. You've talked to five pastors over the last year and a half about what you should do. And you still don't have peace. You've fasted. You've prayed. You've sought your pastors. Godly counsel. You still don't have peace. He called me son. Son, you probably need to pray to Oh, man. About a night later, we had a, a lady from... Indonesia that was a missionary and she was speaking at her church and uh, I was giving her a ride home and I was asking her about her life and things and she told me I had no idea what my story was 
She said, you know, I met another missionary on the field, and we were deeply in love. Deeply in love. And the Lord said, that's not what I want you to do. And she said that, and I hadn't told my fiancé at that time. She said that, and I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew. I had to break it off. Next morning, I knocked on her door, because we were both in Bible college together, and I lived across from her in another apartment, and I would drive her to. She opened the door, and I just saw it. I saw it, because I knew what I had to do. I felt like I had a knife like this. Ended up being God's will. Painful. It's the right thing to do. And now, I have Jenny! <laughs> Anyhow. What in this story, in our closing moments, did Abraham do to evidence his faith? What did you come up with? First of all, he got up early in the morning. He wasn't going to procrastinate on what the Lord wanted him to do anymore. He wasn't going to put it off. He got up early in the morning. What else did he do? Cut the firewood himself. Yep, cut the firewood himself. He didn't question God, he just did it. He didn't question the Lord, he did it. Of course, he'd already been doing things. He left his family and her. He left Lot, the priceless land that ended up being Sodom and Gomorrah. He took the lesser. And now the test of a lifetime, never questioned God. There are other things that he did by faith. Anything else? Well, I think put it back in verse 2, when God said, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. He knew that's why he was going there, was to sacrifice him. Yeah. He brought a knife. Yeah. He brought with him. Yes? Just the fact that he loaded up the son to do it. It wasn't like that I'm born, oh, I know I'm going to lose my son, I'm going to go easy on it. It's just like, okay, you're young, you're strong, you're carrying the wood. Yeah. yeah. I would say from verse 1, he says, here I am. From the very beginning, yep. he was trusting God, just mm -hmm. I. Here am I. Uh -huh. Well, he said, we will worship and then we will come back to you. And he said to two men, we will come back and we will worship him and his son. That's faith. Anything else? It's not a, I hope this will work out. We know that we know that we know through our tears that God is in it. And I'm telling you, it's not long after that, generally speaking, that we know exactly why. And we go, thank you, Jesus. Just like Abraham did. He worshiped the Lord when God provided that ram. So perfect uh, picture too, Bill, of uh, God placing the cross on His Son. 
where Abraham placed the wood on his son. That's right. Knowing he was going to go up to Mount Moriah, which is the same place where Christ went. Yep. Yep. And Christ was led as a sheep to the slaughter, according to Isaiah 53. And his father called him to that. There's a lot of overtones here from the New Testament and what the Lord Jesus did. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the book of James. We thank you that this man who was so skeptical of you in his life and pushed you away for most of the years of his life with you. The first 33, or however much younger he was, you younger than you. And then, Lord, when you set his faith on fire after the resurrection, oh, Lord, he represents you so well. He tells stories like you told your parables. He's direct like you needed to be direct to the Pharisees when it was appropriate. Thank you for the pictures. Thank you for the power. Thank you for his descriptions of what faith in our life should look like if it's genuine. And I pray for anyone tonight that really feel is feeling called to live out their faith in a way that's not comfortable. They might have to talk to somebody. They might have to let someone go. They might have to accept something they don't want to accept um, or trust you with their finances and not take matters in their own hands and be patient Lord, help them now live out their faith in a way that will honor you in a way that you will ultimately bless them. This we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. You're always a delight. Can't wait till next week. We're talking about the power of the tongue. But nobody here in this church needs to hear that, sir. Nobody. It's a good one. James chapter 3.